there, my dear Thoughtvolutionists. Happy Tuesday! I'm your host, Stefan Dubier, and you have made an exceptional choice. After all, Thoughtvolution is the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. So, yay to you for being here with me and my guest, Jenny. I'm glad and grateful you're with us, and I want you to know that I appreciate you so, 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 so much. Knowing that the stories of my guests touch so many other lives and that my guests' lived experiences resonate with y'all out there means everything to me. So, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Where are you listening from right now, I wonder? Perhaps you are at home? That's a big word, isn't it? Home. People say, home is where the heart is. But what does that even mean? Where do you feel at home, friends? Is it the place where you grew up, took your first steps, adopted traditions, and allowed your personality to be shaped from an early age? Or perhaps you moved away, left your past behind, and built yourself your own kind of home in a foreign country, a different town, or perhaps just within a new group of people. Home does not have to be just one place. And it does not need to be a place at all. It can be a mindset, a source of belonging and happiness. Jenny struggled with the concept of feeling at home for a long time. She was born in Indonesia and lives in Connecticut now. However, she has felt like a foreigner for pretty much her entire life. Can you imagine how lonely it must be when you really don't know where you belong? Jenny's early life was defined by a whole lot of religious and cultural shame, by deep trauma she had to learn to heal from. For her, healing began with her very own search for belonging. Knowing how lonely and isolated of a starting point she had, you can imagine that her search was not an easy one. But Jenny prevailed, and she will tell us how her perspective and personhood evolved and how she ended up redefining what being at home truly means, that it's something that happens within us. She now knows that happiness is a habit and that it is something you're able to find at any point in your life. And no matter where you are in the world, Thoughtvolutionists, I am so excited for you to meet this bubbly, strong and happy woman who had to travel the world to find a mirror that finally showed her that she had been at home all along. So, my dear friends, let's open our hearts, open our minds, and open our ears to learn about old habits Jenny had to shed in order to make room for true beauty and happiness. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about childhood trauma, corporal punishment, violence, loneliness, and depression. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Jenny, it is so wonderful to have you. Before we really dive in, how do you normally spend your weekend when there aren't any obligations or podcast recordings? I like to just be outside and have a walk. And when it's a nice day, I like to just sunbathe. 
<laughs> that's an ideal weekend for me without any obligation because that's what I find myself doing when I'm on holiday. I know you work as a teacher. So can you tell us two teacher stereotypes that are in fact correct and two that people typically get wrong? A couple of stereotypes that I heard is teachers being poor. I guess it depends. It depends on the state. From what I know is that some states like D.C. or New York, they pay their teachers, I guess, at least 80000 a year. So that could afford a more decent life. But then there's also other states like Maine and Hawaii. So I heard that Hawaii pays their teachers 45000 a year. And I know that is a very expensive state. <laughs> and Maine, you know, around the same. So, yeah, I guess you would be really poor teachers in those states, but maybe are living in a, you know, a de decent life in D.C. or New York, I guess, depending where you live. I guess if you live in Manhattan with like, you know, 80,000 a year salary, that could be a stretch. But it, it really all depends. It would be nice to have their salary increase too, right? That's just ethical, especially because, yeah, when it comes to educating people, it does take a lot of energy. And uh, another stereotype is uh, that continuously educating. Honestly, I feel that everyone is born a teacher because every life experience that we have, we are sharing it with everyone around us, right? Uh, whenever we're with our friends and we're giving advice or being there for them, we are teaching them. It's like when you're a parent and you're being a role model for your kids, you're being a teacher to them. And when you're being a friend, you're showing them how to be a good friend. That's teaching them too. <laughs> so I don't know if that's even a stereotype because I feel that everyone has an innate teacher in them. I I don't know if that answers the question, <laughs> but maybe the stereotype is true now because <laughs> maybe I'm continuing, you know, maybe I continue to teach even when I'm not teaching. I don't know. <laughs> we are recording this episode during the Easter weekend, a time with great religious significance for Christian believers around the world. I understand that you grew up experiencing a lot of cultural and religious shame. Can you take us back with you to your childhood and explain to us what happened to you? I grew up in Indonesia in a Chinese family. Uh, so by itself, Indonesia is a pretty conservative culture and religion is predominantly Muslim. And within uh, the family, my parents observed pretty much, you know, all the Chinese traditions of uh, raising me and my sister and how we should act as girls and how we should interact. So when you're talking about the cultural and religious shaming, I felt that growing up, the idea of being uh, imposed on how we should be as, a, as, as human and I did not have any freedom of being who I am uh, or who I was. 
at that point growing up. And I also went to Catholic school and Catholic church. And so from all directions, the shaming of being a woman, the shaming of the female body, the shaming of sexuality, that was really constrictive and restrictive. And I could not express any part of me, especially because I was very curious as a little girl, which is really interesting because, well, especially when it comes to the subject of sex, right? But as a teenager, I was always shut down whenever I asked something about, I don't know, female um, organs or, but then uh, we were taught to cover up and we were taught that say periods, female periods were dirty. And so I grew up uh, just, you know, being disgusted <laughs> with, um, when, when, especially when I was um, a teenage girl, I would put layers, you know, when um, things started growing, um, like my breasts started growing and I started getting my periods and that would be an inconvenient thing to happen to a girl. But then, you know, added with a shame, I felt like I had to hide it and there's fear around it too. So that is about being a woman, being a girl, and other things also with the community, the Muslim community around me. So there's always this divide between the Indonesian and the Chinese. Uh, So I am second uh, generation in Indonesia. My parents were born in Indonesia, but my grandfather, uh, he emigrated from China. But there's always been this divide between the locals and the Chinese. The Chinese were always picked on and they were always discriminated against. I remember when I was walking back from school on a daily basis, I would get harassment, you know, could be racial slur or even sexual harassment. Yeah, all kinds of unpleasant cat calls or, you know, just like racial slurs being thrown at me (laughs) on a daily basis. And so it was never comfortable. But when you experience that on a daily basis, it makes you feel like you don't belong there. Uh, That's how I felt. And my parents also raised me um, in an exclusive world. Like we don't really talk to the locals. So I didn't really have any Indonesian, like local Indonesian friends. And my mom, my, my family didn't either, you know. So I never really associated myself with the, the Indonesian culture. And because of this uh, judgment towards the Chinese all the time. And, but the Chinese in Indonesia are mostly responsible for the economy. And so, which is really interesting because although uh, the Chinese are not allowed to participate um, politically, so they, they couldn't get government job. Um, and so they have no choice but to be in business. But the business is also what contributes economically to the country. And so when there was an economic crash, they blamed it on the Chinese. And uh, all the things that they said about them is like, oh, yeah, they came um, 
you know, uh, from from China or whatever, and like they're not locals and they're taking our lands and make fortune here. But yeah, but you know, there's like you know this jealousy and all of that. But because of the crash, because they blame the Chinese, uh, the Chinese. So like, what happened in Europe? How is the Jewish then? happened to the Chinese in Indonesia, which is really interesting. So when I just finished high school, there was this genocide towards the Chinese. They were burning the homes and the businesses of uh, the uh, the Chinese looking people, because it's like, oh, if you have small eyes, you must be Chinese. And they would beat, um, yeah, they would beat them and they raped the women and committed all kinds of violence and my family and I actually had to go to Taiwan oh, we fled to Taiwan because we had we have relatives there and yeah we stayed there uh, maybe for a couple of months until things died down and the the madness kind of settled and we came back to Indonesia for me to go back to go to college and yeah, uh, that's what happens politically. And when I said I never really felt like I belonged, uh, it is because I was never integrated and it felt like I was never accepted uh, because of the way I look, because of my ethnicity. And then on growing up part in my family, that never really, why I never really felt like I belong either is because my parents felt, I mean, it's probably because um, it's the, the stereotype, right, with, with, China, with Asian parents that emphasize academic achievement <laughs> on their kids. And, you know, there's all this pressure because I felt that I um, had to be some kind of a trophy for my parents to make them proud but I could not because I was doing so bad at school. And so I went to Catholic school where they uh, were still practicing corporal punishment. And so every single day I would be punished because I could never do well at school, especially math or pretty much everything. And I always got in trouble because I never did my homework. Um, I would be shamed and yelled at and uh, physically punished by the teachers. Like they would uh, slap me across my face or hit me with a big ruler. Oh, since I was like second grade and then it went on to middle school and probably high school too. Yeah. And I remember a chemistry teacher that would do that to me too when I was in high school. And then um, because uh, my academic achievement was just like so poor. My parents thought that I brought shame uh, to the family. And my mom, like, you know, even after me being punished at school, when I get home and they would hear about me causing trouble at school, I would be punished again at home. My mom would always, you know, compare me to other kids. Why can't you be like, you know, this particular kid who's really good at math and uh, she makes her parents proud. Why can't you make me proud? Why do you always have to uh, bring so much shame? <laughs> and it was constant. And then added to that, my sister is actually really good at school. <laughs> and so I was always compared to her too. 
And so because everybody knew about how badly I was doing and I so I at school, I did not have any friends. And because I felt like everybody was always yelling at me in school, I actually had to go to library to hide from everybody. But that was also um, my sanctuary, the library that became a place for me to just be happy, I think, because I was immersing myself in all kinds of stories and the novels I was reading. And that's how I really, really love reading because the stories, the inspiration, the different kinds of world that I was exposing, I was exposing myself to and I was exposed to, uh, it opened up a, a completely different world in my head. And I felt that, wow, the library became a different world that I could be because that put me in a different state in my head. And that was my escape. And that's what gave me hope, you know. <laughs> but in addition to that, I was also uh, watching a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows, uh, most of them American and British. And the, uh, the, the stories that I was learning from those movies and those TV shows also inspired me a lot on the possibility of a different world that I could be. So being in the family, my parents, yeah, I think I mentioned that they were very punishing. They had a very toxic relationship and it was a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing. I would wake up in the middle of the night, like I was probably nine, eight or nine, or probably 10, but not that probably because it just happened too often. Whereas like at two or three in the morning, they would be yelling at each other, throwing things at each other. And I would be scared at first, but that just became a very uh, normal occurrence for so many years. That was the example that I got of a relationship you know, <laughs> which is really interesting because I now look back of this chain of toxic relationships uh, and marriage <laughs> that I, I, that I came into, but you know, now I know why. <laughs> so that's at home and at church, of course, I never liked it there. It was really boring, really monotonous. And wow, I think my experience with a church, I felt that every time I go there, no, actually, uh, it, every visit is just worse when it comes to a level of boredom, especially Easter. Uh, I dreaded Easter masses. <laughs> you've got the Palm Sunday that would go on and on and on. And then you've got the Good Friday. And I just don't understand. Um, it's probably like the most depressing theme, right? But then the, the, the big church that I belong to, that I, that, I, that I was going to, it would be overflowing with people. And, you know, all these people overflowing, like, you no, know, like all over, like the exit <laughs> of the church. And I did not have anywhere to sit on and fall asleep because it was so boring. Then there's a Saturday that we had to go to. And then there's the Sunday, the resurrection. But I had no choice not to go. 
But then I also understood now that with all the teachings, right, the religion, the culture, um, and the family values, like every single day, I was conditioned, I was programmed, and every single time, it's like every minute being there was the diminishing of my personhood. It was the diminishing of my self-worth and my values. And so when I was in my 20s, I was in college and realized that I did not like uh, what I was studying. And I was like, you know, just here because I had to go to college. But what do I really want to do in life? Like, okay, because I'm already in school of education, I guess I'm going to be a teacher. But that's the thing. I, I was never present for every single moment in school at the masses when I'm with my parents. Um, and what I meant by being present is that because Everything, every moment was so punishing for me. You know, it could be the boredom. It could be the physical punishment and the emotional abuse. In order for me to survive, I had to tune out. I had to get out of my body. I had to not be there emotionally and mentally because I think, yeah, if I had been, that that would have been, wow, that would have been really, really so much more damaging. But a part of my healing now is to learn to be present <laughs> and actually understand what it means to be present because I don't have any threats anymore, right, like, you know, in my life. So I picture this really lonely girl completely isolated, and I, I wonder... Were there any positive memories from that time in Indonesia? I mean, you mentioned the library that was obviously a refuge, but within your family or within the country, within within school, were there any positive things that you remember that kind of helped you through that time? I remember being excited for field trips. The mornings you used to be when I was uh, growing up, of course, going to school was such a drag having to wake up to a punishing day every day, right? But whenever, so it was really hard for me to get off the bed. <laughs> but whenever there's a field trip, I would be so excited the night before and I would be having trouble going to sleep. Uh, but then I would wake up so early because I was so excited and I couldn't wait. And that would be about once or twice a year. And then in high school, I remember I also had another field trip. I was living in Jakarta at that time. And me and a group of other high schoolers caught the bus to go to Bali. We, well, it was actually a school trip. And so there was a chaperone there. And so it was a great time. It was the first time that I went to the island of Bali. And it was just an amazing time. But yeah, I also remember feeling just awkward because everybody was with a group of friends, right? And I I was always the ostracized one, right? But you know, it's uh it taught me to learn to just enjoy my own company. And it was a beautiful island and that's how I got to love the beach. Yeah, those are um, a couple of things that I remember. And um, other than that would be probably family trips. 
probably every every one year, every couple of years, uh, we would take like a family trip outside the city to the mountains. Those are those are great. So yeah, interesting um, that you asked that because um, all the good memories are away from home. <laughs> Out of everything you experienced during those early years of your life, what would you say was the most traumatizing event? The one you might still, after all of the changes in your life, be pulled back by from time to time? It's probably when I was told I was so hard to love. I know it doesn't, it seems a little, not as bad as the beatings and all the physical abuse and the punishments. But I feel that being told that I was hard to love, that's what shaped this idea of I'm not good enough since I was very young. And that was the energy that I carried through my teenagehood, my early adulthood, my adulthood, motherhood. And a lot of times that's what I'm still like stumbled on, <laughs> you know, in so many aspects of my life, uh, in relationships and uh, building business and being a mother. That's, that seems to be the voice that I'm having trouble with shaking off because I would think that, oh, I've worked through that. Of course, I'm good enough. Of course, I'm always enough. And I've done a lot of healing on that. But yeah, even with my conversation with you, like sometimes like, you know, even right, right now, when I felt like, oh, maybe I didn't go deep enough on that. And then that voice came out again. Yeah, that wasn't good enough. You know, like that self-criticism that I developed because I was told I was so hard to love. And yeah, I, I find that to be the most traumatizing of all. Do you think that a part of that might be fully giving yourself the permission to be loved is so hard because gaining that control back and realizing that you are in charge and that you love yourself and that in itself allows you to grant that permission for other people to love you too, do you think that that might be one of the hardest things of that entire journey? That is such a great point because for so many years, now that I look back, I was having trouble with receiving. And that's, I think that's why. But with a healing process, that was brought to my attention that the inability to receive also included the inability to receive love. But as a part of my healing, I have opened up little by little, and understand what it means to receive love from anywhere, really. Nature, uh, when I'm out walking, there's the sun shining down on me, that's love, and there's uh, beautiful flowers around, there's so much love, and dogs saying hi to me, that's love, right? So I had to start there, and then, then with relationships. So, yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I want to circle back just a little bit to your childhood and to the, in particular, the religious trauma that you experienced. 
Why do you think so many people still look for refuge in religion and often find comfort and community there? What appears to be the appeal and how come you were never able to have a similar experience? From what I observe now, even as a child, although the culture in the community, the religious community was punishing, but it was also a comforting place. When you are told that God always loves you uh, because you're his children, but then, all right, if you don't do these things, though, you'll burn in hell. And so, okay, that time I did not know about unconditional love, right? That God is supposed to love you unconditionally. But because everything that was in church was aligned with what I was taught at home, if you don't do these things and you don't listen to your parents or follow whatever your parents wish you to do, then there will be consequences. And then it's the same outside, you know, the, 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 the Muslim community. If you don't follow um, the dress rules, cover yourself enough, then you'll be shamed. Like, you know, that's a consequence. So all the conditional, I guess I would say it's not even love, love right? The conditional respect, the conditional acceptance Although it can be punishing, but for some people who are brought in that community, they don't know better, but they feel safe there because when they follow these rules, they're accepted. And so it's some kind of a structure. And also the idea of deity, God, there's something bigger than themselves. Like, you know, even now, yeah, I do believe that there's a bigger power, but it's not conditional. That's my understanding now. But at that time, in order for me to survive, of course, I had to follow the conditions <laughs> and it made me belong somewhere. Right. So I think that's what's happening with these people. It gives them structure. It gives them a sense of belonging. It gives them something to believe in. And so that's how I I guess that's how I came to this understanding of, say, the extremists. Right there, there are uh, some Muslims who are extreme extremists in Indonesia or uh, Catholic extremists, but it, it is because they made the belief, they made the idea, their identity, and without that idea, without um, the belief, you are stripping off that identity, and that would really shake the world that would make their world very very unstable and i think as humans civilized humans with certain rules that's been conditioned that's been nailed down to their psyche that's a very very dangerous place and so it's always safe to go back to that religion because it's like it's almost like a shelter isn't it not feeling at home you eventually left Indonesia behind to embark on the next part of your journey. What happened next? I got a job in Thailand. And yeah, that was the first time actually I felt at home. <laughs> Interestingly, this is what I noticed. So Thailand is such... Um, okay, 
when it comes to culture, they are just a very, very accepting culture, very accepting people. I, I don't look exactly like a foreigner over there, but they also respect the fact that I didn't speak Thai because I was always smiling at them and they would be smiling at me too. And every interaction is always so lovely, always so kind. And I noticed that when I was moving right to an apartment and uh, these Thai people would go out of their way to help me. And I never experienced that in Indonesia. And so that was the first time I felt really, really at home. And then all the beaches. <laughs> yeah, that was another part of it that made me really love it there. And it's the uh, easy access to the beach, to the outdoors, and I could just be myself. I could wear a two-piece swimsuit and I'm not being judged. So, yeah, I mean, I can't say that I liked my job that time because I had to wake up early, but the kids at school uh, where I was teaching, uh, they were great, but there was also other parts like, you know, um, the school politics and yeah, whatever that is, <laughs> but living in Bangkok away from the environment where I've always felt pressured and shamed and obligated to do something, you know, uh, because of my role as a daughter or as a member of, you know, this uh, conservative environment, I, I just, I was free of all the rules that I used to have back in Jakarta. And so, uh, yeah, that was um, my embarking towards freedom, really, and started to understand what it's like to be free. Oh, you said in Thailand, you began to find comfort, happiness, and a feeling of belonging. Was that also where you managed to reconnect with yourself, ending your own self-separation? What had to happen for you to realize that home was within you all along? That's an interesting question. It did feel like home. For me, it was more the freedom, the freedom from the society that I grew up in, the freedom from my parents, the freedom from my relatives' uh, judgment. But when I was in Bangkok, it was so comfortable. Um, I was living in a luxury apartment right next to the subway, which is pretty luxurious you know, compared to the New York trains. <laughs> Bangkok subway feels like a five-star hotel. And I loved where I live because it's got this beautiful infinity pool and jacuzzi. So I think a part of me, there's also like my ego, this looks good. This looks good on me. And I like how I feel and how I look with, you know, all these attributes, right? But I think I only realized being at home when I came to the U.S. when I went for grad school in Madison, Wisconsin. And so I had to let go of all of this um, comfortable life in Bangkok. I mean, I wouldn't say comfortable because my life in Madison, Wisconsin was also comfortable. But I, you know, became this poor student, but I was still living not too far from the lake. Uh, but then... It was also the time when I, for the second time, started building my life, started building my circle of friends, building this routine 
and the life that I loved. My workout routine, um, meeting friends, all the outdoor activities, and then the different type of people that I made friends with and the different types of people who are around me. Because before, oh, the Thais are amazing. They're always so accepting and they're always so friendly. But I actually could engage with the people in in Wisconsin. I was in a college town, Madison. And it's like everybody that I was talking to were on the same page in life. (laughs) And so I was having so much fun being around these people. And I felt accepted for who I was. I could be weird um, and I still had friends who are there for me. And so I had friends who became my family. And that was the first time I realized that, wow, this feels even more at home because I don't, I don't have to censor myself here, you know, just because um, the people around me were not censoring themselves. And they could be true to themselves. And at that point, it was a strange thing for me because, you know, like it was just like, okay, there's uh, all these personas that I had to adopt, even in Thailand. It's like, okay, you know, like my appropriate teacher persona and then like my out with friends persona. And in uh, medicine, I felt I could be consistent, you know, being this one persona, which is just myself. <laughs> Um, so that was even a new level of freedom that I experienced. If we have somebody out there listening right now who might have experienced or still is experiencing something similar to what you had to go through, feelings of shame, isolation, not knowing where they belong or fit in, what would be your word of advice for them? One thing that I remember doing was to find a place of comfort. And that time that was the library because being exposed to a different world through the stories, that presented new possibilities for me. And the second thing, something that I remember that I did was volunteering. <laughs> so then I, then I, realize after I heard this quote, I don't even remember where it's uh, where it's from, but if you don't feel that you get love, you don't get enough love, give love. That I remember, although people thought that it was stupid, you know, for me to want to say, uh, help out an orphanage or volunteer somewhere, And my parents thought it was just the most ridiculous thing. Uh, Why would you want to consort with like people who are like, you know, in orphanages, like, you know, like they're dirty or, you know, there's like this classism thing going on too. And I was never allowed that, but that was really what I wanted to do. And then when I was in Thailand, I finally got to do it. I volunteered for a dog shelter and that was the... And the reward, emotional reward that I got from helping out other vulnerable creatures, like the dogs, um, the the job was to rescue uh, street dogs and stray dogs and help them get adopted. 
that was, wow, the most amazing feeling. And that really brought up my sense of worth, which I didn't have before. And then I thought, wow, if I could only do this sooner, right, back uh, where I was in my life, I would realize that maybe it didn't matter if I felt like I didn't, I wasn't loved, but then I could give love. And whenever I give love, I feel love. I know that sounds, I don't know if that, you know, resonates with you, <laughs> but then that's how I realized that, <laughs> you know, you are the embodiment of love, you know, because when you give love automatically and it's given, you receive love too. Although there's no uh, reciprocation, but then, you know, you were just expressing that aspect of you that is love. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> In your intake form, you described that happiness is a habit. Just like with all habits, routine and repetition do the trick. So what would be your secret recipe for anyone listening and striving for a happier self? So an emotion is really just a thought that's been repeated. And that repetition is the habit. And just like misery, right? Like back when I was growing up, uh, living in misery uh, because of the way I was conditioned, then there was this habit of thought of over and over again, sadness, misery, you know, feeling lonely. Although it was enforced by my uh, outdoor environment, but I was internalizing that. And that was my habit of thought of being sad, uh, being isolated. Um, and right now, being in a different place, because I stepped out of that environment that caused me to adopt that habit of misery. <laughs> if I wanted to be happy, then I would have to go to the other side. Whatever thoughts, I will need to adjust it so that it's the opposite. Well, now that I'm looking back, it, it is that simple. In order for me to be happy, happiness is an emotion. Joy is an emotion. That means I would have to start consistently thinking happy thoughts and make that a repetition. In order for me to help myself with that repetition, I would have to enforce it with movement, right? Just like the other side, just like the opposite, it was enforced by my outer environment. And I can also create an outer environment that is conducive to creating happy thoughts. And for me, to enforce that is by doing happy things. For me, it's yoga, dances, music, and consistently uh, being outside, being exposed to fresh air and blue sky or just open sky. <laughs> Sadly, we often adopt habits that are counterproductive for our own happiness. You mentioned them and you said, well, the opposite. And those, those habits can keep us from thriving. What are some things you urge everyone to stop doing? I would urge people to stop finding where they are comfortable. They need to stop 
being in that hamster wheel of dis- um, of discomfort that became a comfort zone and step out of it. They need to step out of the drama that is their life. They need to stop that hamster wheel and jump out, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> I definitely urge taking responsibility because if I think about it, I didn't ask to be born in such an abusive environment, right? The the culture, the religion, and where I was, because it was very traumatizing and it's caused a lot of damage uh, with how I continue with my life, with my interaction with people, with how I uh, got into all these toxic relationships and having no boundaries. Oh yeah, all the (laughs) the consequence of trauma. But what I did was taking responsibility. Although uh, whatever trauma that happened was not my fault, it never was my fault, but my healing is my responsibility. That was the biggest lesson that I took, that there was no, there's really no use of blaming because pointing fingers and, you know, you're just making your problems even bigger. The one thing that I really urge you to do is just going back and be for yourself. Because, um, I mean, I, I, at this point, I guess I won't say forgive. Like, you know, may, maybe to some people, that's a little too much to do. But what about just being with yourself, feel what you have to feel and be a parent to yourself. I think that's um, a part of my healing that I've done is um, being the bigger self and come and soothe the wounded inner child or children <laughs> that, you know, of different events and the different kinds of traumas that I have uh, experienced. But I think, you know, it just kind of goes back to me parenting myself again. I love that you talk about being a parent because I know you have your own little family now. Similar to our habits, we all have traditions and rituals that connect us to our culture. It's something many of us celebrate. Certain foods remind us of family gatherings or holidays. We listen to music that allows us to time travel for a little bit. Sadly, many of the things that happen to you cover potential happy occasions with a dark cloud. Have you been able to create your own quote-unquote culture? And what are some traditions or rituals your family now celebrates? I mentioned Easter. Is there anything special you do around this time? I would pick only the fun parts to celebrate. So like uh, Easter egg hunt, I would take my son to the church that's not too far from where I live. And they would have fun activities going on. And we would go out there and see if we could get eggs. (laughs) And we would go to the park and do that too. You know, it's really interesting but uh, my son's birthday is around Easter. And so we don't really do Easter baskets or anything because he would get a lot of birthday presents. <laughs> and so that's why I don't do Easter baskets. But we definitely don't go to church. And it's interesting you're talking about tradition. I have been 
to a couple of other churches because a friend of mine would invite me there and I would take my son because there are kids there that he could play with. But there's also part of like, you know, that the fear from the trauma that I experienced, which is the mention of mentioning of God. <laughs> For some reason, it just made me really uncomfortable. It's still there. So that means there's some, something there that I still need to heal <laughs> because there is this question that came um, and my son asked me, what is God? Wow. I, um, I actually didn't know how to explain that. I know that it could be a part of the tradition, but because of that question that I did not know how to explain to my son, I felt it was best for me to stop going to the church until I find a way to explain to him what that tradition means, like, you know, the conception of God, what, what it actually means uh, going to a church, because I want him to be able to choose what beliefs that he wants to adopt later in his life. But while well, I've exposed him to church, okay, maybe, you know, later he would rather uh, practice Buddhism and that's cool too, you know, whatever. Um, another tradition that I also practice is a uh, Chinese New Year. That's a fun one. I would still invite some friends over and we would have um, some Chinese food. And in the Chinese tradition during Chinese New Year, you would give children a little red envelopes with some money in there, probably you know, a dollar or two. Uh, so that's fun. And my son would feel like, you know, he's rich <laughs> from receiving these little envelopes. Yeah, so those are the two traditions that, that the main ones that I would do are of Christmas. You know, we don't go to church or anything, but there's the Christmas presents, but it's all really about uh, being with family. And because my, uh, well, my, my son's father and I have divorced, he would have two of everything, two Christmas parties, um, two sets of Christmas presents two birthday parties, <laughs> but it's also good that he's exposed to some of the roots I have, which is the Chinese New Year. So speaking of family, how has the relationship to your parents changed? Do you still have a relationship to your parents? Do you still see each other? How involved are they in your son's life? What is that like now? I feel that now that I'm away from them, my relationship with my parents are so much better because we probably have more limited exposure to each other and there is less potential for arguments and conflicts and things like that. We get in touch through Skype and you know, other apps uh, that enables us to communicate with each other and my parents are able to see my son, you know, like their, their little precious boy. <laughs> and we would go to visit Indonesia every year. Uh, this actually happened just before the last visit was before the pandemic. But before that, yeah, we were, we would go there every summer and we would spend a couple of months there. And, oh my gosh, yeah, of course, there are times when there are triggers <laughs> when we were together. It's like, 
past two weeks as the honeymoon phase is over and <laughs> we'd be picking at each other. But I think that's like it's like that with a lot of families too. On my journey, I also came to understanding that my parents were just doing whatever they could, the best that they know how, to raise me and my sibling so that we could survive in that environment. It was conditional, but that was also how they grew up. You know, they grew up in an environment where the tougher you are with a child, the more respectful that they would become. And that way, and for them, it's really important to be liked. They were raised to please other people. And that's pretty much how, how I was raised too. They were raised and they lived their lives without any boundaries. And so they raised me and I was not allowed to have boundaries, you know. So it was all because they were just passing down on what they know to me. And it was not their fault either. And when people are talking about forgiveness, right, when you have that understanding, there's really nothing to forgive. They are who they are. And our relationship has always been evolving, you know, as I discover a new aspect of myself, right, that aspect of myself that couldn't stay in a marriage, and I had to get a divorce. At first, my mother's reaction was, you brought shame to the family. (laughs) But then they came to understanding that although you chose to stay in a marriage that is toxic, it doesn't mean that everybody else should, and I chose not to. And so their understanding of me have evolved too over the years. And they're they came to understand that it's either you accept your child or you lose a relationship with them. And I guess all this time they've chose, uh, they've chosen to accept me or who I am, no matter how hard it is, because they prioritize the relationship. And I think that's a beautiful thing from their part. So I know we do not have a crystal ball, but where do you hope to see your journey continue? I would like to just flow with where the universe wants to take me. I don't know if that's an answer. (laughs) Because, yeah, uh, you're right. I can't really tell the future because I have made plans in the past and none of my life has been (laughs) going according to my plans. But the focus of where I want to go, I want that to be based on loving connection with wonderful humans around me. So maybe that's why I um, started coaching is because I feel connected with people who are willing to grow and who want to continually uh, grow because, yeah, the more I interact with them, the more I connect with them, I feel that I'm evolving as a human being too. And I want where my life goes is towards more expansion. And that would mean more traveling. I want to see more of the world. I want to be exposed to aspects of humanity that I have never seen or experienced before. I want to constantly be connected to the newness of the billions of 
aspects of the universe. And I think those should be the intentions that I set of where I want to go and where that's going to be or how that's going to be. Who knows? <laughs> and I just have to trust that wherever I'm going, I'm, I'm being supported and loved all the way. You mentioned to me that you also work as a habit coach, focused on creating a morning routine as a way of self-loving, healing the nervous system, and developing a mindset of unshakable happiness and peace. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. We could circle back to that habit of happiness, the thought, uh, the habit of thoughts that then form this emotion of happiness and make that consistent. And so my work really started when I was an overwhelmed mother. Um, I was a new mother and, uh, and I was still carrying all trauma and the pressure of what a woman should be, right? And so at that point, because there was so much going on and I felt like my world crumbled and I was probably in the, the worst misery uh, that I'd ever been in my life. But then that's what got me out of the marriage. And I got to step out from that environment um, with expectations. And that's when I started to reevaluate my habits and especially the morning. <laughs> and so I could tell you a little bit of my theory by the mornings, right? Because back in the day, why mornings were so miserable for me, it was because I expected it to be horrible. I expected it to be punishing and stressful. And um, that was affecting my personality. And it was worsening the trauma. And I was a completely different personality back then, because there was just too much of the sad and desperate energy. And that's how I felt when I was a new mother, um, and I, there was probably some hormonal imbalance too that was going on, but I was very unhappy with the environment because although people thought, oh, you have a husband and you have a baby and you're living in a nice house with nice yard, you're like, what else do you want? Like, you know, you're all set, but really I wasn't. Um, and so getting out of that environment, you know, in this a little apartment that I uh, that I live right now, and I've never been happier in my life. To be honest with you, I am free of any kind of pressure, and so you know, in order for you to be happy, you got to let go of the pressure, <laughs> step out of an environment that pressures you, and started my morning with music and dancing. At first, when I was like dragging myself in the morning, I had resistance to even play some music and move because it's like, oh, I'm so used to having a miserable morning. Why would I want to turn on some music? <laughs> right? That was what I was comfortable with. That was my comfort zone. And so ugh, after debating with myself a few seconds, just turn on the music. And so I did turn on the music. <laughs> And then I felt, oh, okay, this is fun music. I should probably dance to it. I had resistance to dancing to music, although nobody was watching. And that's how powerful that programming was for me to be miserable, right? But I danced anyway. And after a few seconds, oh, I started having fun. 
And so the next morning, I decided to play the music and move to the music. Then I decided to wake up 10 minutes earlier the following morning, just so I could dance to one or two songs before I went before I went to my miserable job at you know, that time that I hated, of course. And then I noticed that after a couple of days doing that, my mood was uplifted. My interaction with the students changed. I actually talked to them. I actually had a conversation with them, you know, without me being demanding, you do that work, you do that work, I pay attention to what I'm teaching. And like, you know, that was some kind of like a transactional relationship that I had with my students. But because there was a spark of happiness that I gave myself in the morning that changed my personality that day, I actually interacted them like they're human (laughs) for the first time. (laughs) And so all the fun that I had for 10 minutes felt like it needed to be a little longer because I had so much fun. And that became 15 minutes and that became 20 minutes the following month and then half an hour. Then I started adding different things like challenge, push-up challenge or trying new yoga pose that's difficult. Um, Then I learned about juicing and I added 20 more minutes so I could start juicing. And then the ice cold shower meditation and the breath work, then it became this two hour morning routines that are just so happy that I was excited to wake up to. And that's the beginning of it. (laughs) Then it led to me wanting to share that with people on social media. I just kind of invited them because the concept that I had that time, you know, mornings can be really fun. And, you know, especially for people who identify as uh, not a morning person like me, Right. Because, yeah, if you have to wake up to a lot that you don't like a job that you don't like or you have to take care of everybody else but you, that's really hard to wake up to. But what if that habit of happiness, you can start early in the morning and then the next morning you would wake up excited to do this happy things for yourself and that becomes a cycle. Right. And and all the things that you're doing for yourself that bring you joy. It's not because you have to, it's because you want to, because you're having fun doing that. And so with me, it started with the music and the dance, and then it led to another fun thing. Then it led to the next one that's nourishing and fun and emotionally nourishing, especially, right? Because that was the point of it. When you want to start a habit of happiness, start with something that gives you joy that you find emotionally nourishing like it could be different for everyone yeah i hope that answers the question (laughs) you mentioned to me that there are four pillars that are of great significance absolutely the first one that is the biggest priority is emotional that's the first pillar so that's why if it's not fun it's not worth it keep that in mind (laughs) it has to be something that gives you joy So to meet the emotional part of the routine is that you are going to pick something that gives you the most exhilaration and fun and joy, right? For some people, for me, it's dancing. And I do hope that you find that the easiest. And for some people, it could be yoga, it could be meditation, it could be a walk outside because you like fresh air and that nourishes you. But 
it needs to be something that's emotionally fulfilling. And the second one is um, spiritual. So I meditate for me to do that. Or I could listen to something inspirational on audiobook while I'm preparing my breakfast. But it is something that lights you up because there's something inspiring, right? Like with meditation, it's it always feels so satisfying for me to reconnect with the bigger part of me. And when I listen to an audiobook or some story that that wow, that inspires me, that was like, you know, by itself, it's so energizing. Okay, so that's the spiritual part. And then there's uh, intellectual. And I would go back to the audiobook. I mean, this is like the next stage, right? And so if you feel that you can spend maybe five minutes uh, doing something that you love, that you want to explore more and you want to grow, maybe playing the guitar or work on some difficult dancing steps or some martial arts moves, do that. You're actually expanding your uh, brain capacity. If you just do that five minutes a day, right? You're connecting with that part of you that still wants to grow physically, intellectually, really. And um, with me, what I did was practicing dancing, <laughs> you know, the, the difficult salsa moves in just five minutes. And I nailed it in like three months. It took me a while, but that was so satisfying. And then physically, that's a fourth pillar. When, I, when I'm dancing, I'm also keeping myself in shape, right? So uh, that was physically satisfying, still is. And maybe you want to add some other things like, we call that the HIIT cardio or something that energizes you on a physical level. And then breakfast. Well, I don't really do breakfast, but I do juicing, but uh, the idea is that the first thing that goes into your body should be hydrating and nourishing. And I just use juicing because it's just so easy, right, for your body to absorb. And yeah, so pay attention to the movement and what you put into your body. And those are the four pillars. For anyone out there who would love to learn more about you, your work as a habit coach, that morning routine and overall happiness, where can they find you and what resources can you recommend? I'm most active on Instagram. So you could definitely find me on Instagram at Sunny Jenny Lee. I also have a Facebook page and I'm going to send you the link to the Facebook page that you could um, come to follow me and check out my work. Yeah, and the resources. How about this? What if I also share with you my playlist and it's titled Morning Party Vibes? <laughs> so those, those are pieces of music that I find the happiest and you just can't help yourself but dance to it. And that's just a perfect way to start the morning on a happy note like that. And okay, as for other resources, I mean, it's always good, right, to read books like Miracle Morning uh, by Hal Elrod. 
actually, I really like his book. I mean, he there there are things that are said right by these coaches, uh, these gurus, uh, or like James Clear, who talks about habit stacking, and actually, that's how I stacked my habits. Like you know, after what works for me, the dance, you know, and I felt happy doing that, and then I added more and I added more, just like you know, little things that feels doable for you right there. But something that you need to keep in mind is making sure that whatever habit that you pick, you need, if you want that to be sustainable, you need to make it fun and easy and simple. So I'm not a proponent of waking up two hours early and then go to the gym. That would just be too much for me. And especially if you identify yourself as not a morning person and you want to start morning routines, that's definitely not the way to do it. The best way to do it is start easy, start with 10 minutes. And within those 10 minutes, what is the most fun thing for you to do something that gives you the most joy and start from there. And then if you want some more inspiration on the things to do, what, you know, what will be productive for you in the morning, and then you could get some more ideas from Hal Elrod and James Clear. Yeah. And another resource that I'm going to give you is definitely the fun playlist. (laughs) Jenny, this was truly inspiring. If we receive a bucket full of questions, are you willing to come back and speak to me again in a follow-up interview? Absolutely. I'd be so happy to. The whole time that I'm talking with you, it, it's been, I can't believe that it's almost a couple of hours. <laughs> it's so much fun. And you're so, you have this comforting presence about you that, that makes it easier for me to be honest and transparent. So thank you for that. And just like that, Thought Thoughtvolutionists, another episode is already over. <laughs> I really hope Jenny was able to give you some inspiration to help you find that burst of energy and happiness right from the start of your day. I don't know about you, but I'm actually excited to incorporate some of her ideas in my own morning routine. Perhaps Thought Thoughtvolution will even become a crucial part of how you begin your day. Who knows? There is so much power in taking ownership of your morning. You may not be able to determine what happens to you at work or as you face difficulties throughout the day, but you can impact your own happiness, stress levels, and your overall attitude by making your morning whatever you want it to be, to give yourself that extra boost right after you recharge at night. So remember the four pillars and remember Jenny's story. One about figuring out where you are truly at home and that oftentimes that desired destination you long for so very much, that deep feeling of belonging has actually been within you all along. As always, you can find Jenny's information, including her playlist, in our show notes. I know that Jenny would love to hear from you and I cannot wait to hear from you either. So now that you have reached the end of this episode, Here is how you can become a part of the show. To ask questions directed to Jenny, any of my other guests, or even questions you would like for me to answer, check out our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. 
If you are more of a verbal communicator, no problem. We have a virtual voicemail number you can call at any time at 864-501-5033 to leave us your questions. Again, that is 864-501-5033. Perhaps you are completely obsessed with the stories of our amazing guests and Thoughtvolution itself. Well, please rate, review, comment, and subscribe to Thoughtvolution on your favorite podcast platform and all of our social media. We are literally everywhere. YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., etc., etc. And I would love to interact with you directly. So please do not hesitate to reach out. Especially if you have a story to tell. Because Thoughtvolution is the place to do it. Jenny was brave and you can be just as courageous. There is an intake form on our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. Just fill it out and I promise I will be in touch. Last but not least, with the warm season of the year approaching, get yourself some Thoughtvolution swag. We have a merch store on our website. Again, that is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. And there is a little something for everyone. So give it a look, check it out. I'm sure you will find something you like. Alrighty, friends. Time for me to hop off and to brace myself for tomorrow morning as I shall attempt a brand new morning routine. I love you lotsies. Please be safe out there. Know that you are loved and that you matter to this special little community. As always, because kindness is everything, please be kind to each other. <laughs>